are listening to Radio Maria and this is Father Toby with you live from Cambridge with the Friarside. Um, we're going to continue today our reading of uh, Frank Sheed's uh, magnificent uh, little book, A Map of Life, A Simple Study of the Catholic Faith. And we've got now to um, his examination of the, of the church um, and how the church hands on not only the, the, the divine life of Christ, um, but also his, his teaching. So we're on chapter seven, which is truth, the teaching church. Um, so just to recap, she just said that the, through the church, um, we receive three things that we need in order to have the life in abundance that Christ promises. First truth then law, and then also life. Um, and he looks at how Christ has uh, given uh, through the through the church um, the the apostles um, who through the apostolic succession uh, guarantee the handing on of his of his teaching of the truths that he that he gives in an in an unbroken continuity and then he says that there are there are two ways in which that teaching are, are handed down there is a there's what we call the sort of the larger tradition with a capital. It's not just things we do by, by convention, um, but a, a sort of a, a core of truth handed down through sort of oral teaching and, and, and later sort of, you know, put into, into works, of, works of theology. So it doesn't all, all remain purely an, an oral tradition, but it's an oral tradition which is, is put down in writing over, over time. Um, and then there is also the, uh, the scriptures what he calls small into the, in relation to the mass of teaching, um, but a body of teaching of priceless value. Um, and so he says that in, in inspiring the authors of scripture to write, God is, is continuing what he'd begun with his chosen people, Israel. And it's the fact of the, the books of the Bible being inspired, which gives them a different character to all the other writings in the world, which places them in a, in a, in a special importance. And, I, and I'm always struck by the way that people with, uh, with no religious belief uh, whatsoever continue to, to study the, the Bible. And the Bible is, is not the, the most sort of eloquent or, or beautiful writing in the world. There are parts of it which are, which are quite clunky, parts of it which are, which are quite boring, um, in some ways, doesn't mean boring. Doesn't mean unimportant. Um, that's an important distinction. Um, but it's but it's not the most beautiful writing contained in all the in all the writings in the world. And yet, there's something that fascinates academics to keep coming to it and keep on uh, studying it in in greater detail. And I only think that's because they they perceive on intuit on on some level not not spoken that this text is different to other texts and, and not just because of it being foundational for for Christendom and for and for western society but that this text is somehow unlike the other texts um and so she says that the inspired writing of the Jews collected together in the old testament well they were in some a record of the creation and fall of man um, and then the New Testament shows uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, actually in the world doing the work that he came to do. And as we said last time, there are, there are three rough divisions you can 
look at in the writings of the New Testament. You can see the four Gospels as records of Christ's life on earth. You can see the Acts of the Apostles and some of the other letters um, show the church facing her first disciplinary and doctrinal problems. And then Revelation as a series of visions concerned mainly with the, the universal conflict of good and evil and its ultimate issue. Um, and in some ways, the, the, book of, the book of Revelation it, it sort of in, it, it, in those sort of almost violent uh, passages contained within it show the, the birthing pains of the new order brought about by Christ. But now we turn to look at a, at a really important uh, subject, the, the development of doctrine. Um, and this is something which creates a, a, lot, of, a lot of confusion. Um, some people sort of mistake development for change and then think that everything is up for grabs. And some people think that, uh, and some people also think that development is change and so think that the church's teaching has to remain utterly static. Um, obviously, it's ni neither one nor the other. So she says, the church by the time the last apostle had died had all the mass of truth the apostles had taught, the whole of it by word of mouth, a part of it in writing. And she might have simply gone on through the 19th century since repeating what had been taught, reading what had been written. And in this case, she would have been a preserver of truth, but scarcely a teacher. She would have been a piece of human machinery, but not a living thing, not the mystical body of Christ. And what she points out is that she, in fact, not only repeats what the apostles had been taught, the church, the teaching church, thinks upon what the apostles has taught, meditates upon it, reasons with it, prays by it, lives it. And in doing all this, the church came to see further and further depths of truths in it. And seeing these, she taught these too. Everything was contained in what Christ had given the apostles to give the church, but though everything was there, it was not all seen explicitly, not all at once. And here he gives us a helpful comparison to try and make the position a bit clearer. A man brought into a dark room begins by distinguishing little. Then he sees certain patches of shadow blacker than the rest. And bit by bit he sees these as a table and chairs. And then, as his eyes grow accustomed to the obscurity, he sees things smaller still, pictures, books, ashtrays, and so on to the smallest detail. Nothing has been added to the contents of the room, but there has been an immense growth in his knowledge of the contents. So too with the church. She has by generation and, genera by generation and generation seen deeper and deeper. And this development in the church's understanding of what has been committed to her is not like anything else in the world. Here's a really important point. Science, for instance, he points out, progresses, but its progress consists to a large extent in, in discovering and discarding its own errors, whereas the teacher, teaching of the church develops by seeing further truths. Um, now, if you want uh, an example of how uh, science proceeds by sort of almost uh, rev revolutions, then you can have a look at the writings of Thomas Kuhn, um, who shows that most uh, su substantial advances in science uh, occur with a, a complete paradigm shift, a completely different way of seeing things. But the teaching of the church has a has a, traje a trajectory of, of constant progress to it and a seeing deeper and a, 
and un enveloping what was already known. And at every stage the church adds something, but not at the cost of discarding anything. At every stage all she teaches is true, is true, and at no stage does she teach all that is contained in the truth. And this development, which we find in theology and nowhere else, combines two things. The work of men's minds and the overruling protection of God. Now, how God's overruling protection works, well, that's a, a massive subject and we won't fully discuss that, that here, but perhaps we might try and have a credo um, on, the, on the Holy Spirit sort of guiding the, 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 the magisterium at some point. But he says, in theology as in science, progress comes by the minds of men and women working on what they have been taught. But left to themselves, they may make further mistakes. In science they do, but in the teaching of the church they do not. And the reason is that God intervenes to prevent the teaching of error by his church. God's actions, whether revelation or sacrament or miracle, are never labor-saving devices. God does not do them to save us the trouble of doing what we can do for ourselves. In Revelation, for instance, God teaches us what we could not, at any rate not with absolute sureness, find out for ourselves. But having given that to us, he leaves us to meditate upon it and arrive at a clearer understanding of it. God invites us to, to think. Having made us in his image and likeness, he invites us not just to be co-creators, um, but also to think and to ponder upon his truths. Let's now listen to uh, Signum Magnum, sung by the uh, Cantate of Regensburg.
are listening to Radio Maria and this is Father Toby with the Friar side. And we're currently going through Frank Sheed's uh, Map of Life and looking at the uh, the teaching church. And we're now going to uh, look into a, a little more to that uh, controversial to some is statements that in the teaching of the church there are no mistakes. And Sheed says that in order to examine this phrase we first have to look at what we mean by the phrase, the teaching church. And he says that the first teachers in the church were the apostles and their successors are the bishops. The bishops are the teaching body of the church. Um, and so that, this is an important thing to think about in relation to the, to the synod. Um, the synod, by virtue of being opened up to, uh, to, to laity um, and the synod uh, also by, by nature of what a, a synod normally is, which is a, a, a consultative uh, body. The synod has no teaching authority. Um, and every single person at the, uh, you know, every single member of sort of laity at the, at the synod could like, vote for a particular change in the, in, in the, in the teaching of the, the church or, or also vote for, say, let's not say a change, but some uh, different in interpretation interpretation of something um and that would be of no authority whatsoever it would purely be of sort of consultative in, in interest the teachers the teaching body of the church is the is the bishops um their uh, their their threefold task as as bishops is to is to teach um to to govern and to sanctify and so since God will not have his church taught error as to his doctrine, he will not allow the bishops to teach error. This or that bishop or group of bishops may give wrong teaching in theology, but what is taught by the bishops as a body cannot be wrong. So here, note, there's this first distinction here. Just because an individual bishop said it doesn't make it right. Um, there's a there's an infallibility which belongs to the bishops as a whole, which doesn't belong to any individual bishop. And so on some given subject, it might be difficult to know what the bishops as a body do teach. And in that case, they may be gathered together in a general council where they could state their teaching and so place it beyond doubt. But however we come by the knowledge, once we do know what the bishops as a body teach, we know the certain truth, for their teaching is guaranteed by God. And that is the ordinary way in which the Catholic does learn God's truth from the teachers appointed by the, his bishop. It's one way in which Christ fulfills his promise not to leave us as orphans through the apostles and the apostolic succession and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, Christ does not abandon us to error but rather ensures that we can remain in his truth and thus remain in him. So Sheed has given us the ordinary way in which the bishops uh, teach. But he says there is another way, an extraordinary way. The bishops as a body are not allowed by God to teach what is wrong on faith and of, on matters of faith or morals revealed by him. This is what we mean when we say they are infallible. But one of them, the head, you should see where this is going to go, Christ's representative on earth, the bishop of the Rome, the bishop of Rome, whom we call the Pope, 
one of them is infallible independently of the other bishops. And in case of doubt as to what the bishops teach, a definition by the Pope himself is sufficient to inform us of the truth. But if the body of bishops with the Pope at their head are the sole infallible teachers of doctrine, they are not the only people in the church who are studying doctrine. Every Catholic does it to some extent. Theologians give their lives to it. And in the age we live in, um, a higher proportion of theologians um, are not bishops and uh, not priests or, or any form of religious than at any point in the history of the church. And he says, throughout the ages, there has never ceased to be a stream of solid thinking on theology. Now, this thinking is the thinking of men and women, and the result of their thinking may be the emergence of some truth not previously so clearly seen, but likewise, the result of their thinking may be error. How shall we know which it is? Well, here, Sheed says, it's for the bishops to decide. If it is true, then they adopt it and teach it. If it is false, God does not allow them to adopt it and teach it. Um, this is where a, a theologian has to have a certain humility. Um, it's absent some theologians whereby the bishops having declared on a certain area of teaching, some people persist in trying to argue otherwise. Um, you can see that around the issue of, uh, of, of, women, of women's ordination um, would be one obvious example. But, but there are many other areas in which uh, certain theologians continue to try and get the church to change her teaching. But the church, by her very nature, does not change her teaching. Um, as, uh, as St. John Paul II said when he sort of infallibly declared the position on women's ordination, um, it's not that the church doesn't want to, it's that she does not have the authority to. The church cannot claim an authority to do something which was not given her by Christ. And if it wasn't given her by Christ at the beginning, it can't suddenly exist over 2,000 years later. And so she says, um, an erroneous view, um, it's quite possible that an erroneous view might become current, even widely current. Um, but sooner or later, the teaching authority acts and the erroneous view is declared to be erroneous. So just because everybody's thinking it doesn't make it right. And a theologian who has fallen into error may, as I then said, persist in his error. And at that point, they become a formal heretic. Uh, we mentioned this on questions of faith the other day, the difference between a, a material heretic and a formal heretic. The theologian's only a material heretic when they're um, sort of hold, hold, holding a view, proposing a, a view on which the, the church hasn't uh, definitively uh, declared, um, but will subsequently. They're only a material heretic when their teaching is, is against that which the church will subsequently um, teach. But once they insist on it after the church has declared on this matter, they become a formal heretic. And that's a very serious thing. And so the very task of refuting the theologian, that actually leads to a closer examination and thus to a better understanding of the doctrine at issue. And so the questioner, um, I think it was one of, in fact, one of uh, Shimon's, uh, who's a, a catechist here in Cambridge, was one of his confirmation candidates had been asking, actually, is heresy not, not, a, not a, good, a good thing? Um, and here, you know, she is getting at, at that point that that sort of um, 
you know thinking thinking questioner was was asking because um, when people you know think on what the church teaches um and try and come to a, a deeper understanding of that it's not a problem that people sometimes get it wrong um that's 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 not not a, not a problem at at all that's going to happen because it's us fallible human beings doing the thinking um and actually it, it's good that people should think and it's good that they should sometimes get it wrong because in the getting it wrong they allow the church to further clarify what is in fact true and if we're if we're humble as theologians we'll be grateful for that fact we'll be grateful for the fact that the teaching authority of the church the bishops guided by the holy spirit that through them we're preserved from error because we should want to be preserved from error more than we should want to be right um, there's a difference between wanting to be right and wanting to live in the truth um, and pride can see us insist on the fact that we're right um, to the absence of truth um, let's come a, a, a little bit what well, actually we'll give one more paragraph and then we'll go to a bit of music so he says the decision of the bishops as a body or the bishop of rome as head is final and that as we have seen is watched by god he does not allow them to teach his church what is wrong he does not add new teaching or fill their minds with new doctrine for that they must use their minds in the ordinary way of man but he prevents falsehood from being taught by them and we can see um actually with humano vitae and the church's teaching um on uh, on on contraception uh, the way that a, that a consultative body that the church uh, set set up um, was actually leading towards um, uh, a sort of a restricted permission on the contraceptive uh, actions, um, and then uh, Pope Pope Paul the Paul the Sixth exercising his uh, extraordinary magisterium um, declared uh, that sort of contra contraceptive acts were against uh, what god had intended for human sexual relations and when we look at that document and we see what he prophesied would be the result um of an acceptance of contraception we can see very much how in that in that moment contrary to the, the way that the the spirit of the world was guiding the world that the holy spirit preserved the pope from teaching error um and that's why we have to have humility and it's why we have to um sort of go against the the idea in in in, in the world that there's sort of you know just constant progress and that and that change equals uh progress um and actually be humble with regards to the teaching of the church i think we're going to finish um there for 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 the day and uh and then tomorrow we're going to uh just to summarize this and then we're going to get into that beautiful uh, truth, the most profound truth which the church teaches, the mystery of the Trinity, a truth which we could have only come to knowledge of because it was first revealed us by God. So let's now listen to, to one of my favorite pieces, Drop, Drop, Slow Tears. <laughs> 